there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thanks very, very much for joining me today. Now, I'm really excited to share this interview with you because I'm really excited about this book. This is David Brophy's Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thanks very, very much for joining me today. Now, I'm really excited to share this interview with you because I'm really excited about this book. This is David Brophy's Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2016. Now, you'll notice that I said Russia-China Frontier, and this is notable because one of the things that I think makes this book so special is that David is really diving into um, both sides of this frontier. This is not just a book on Xinjiang or on the Uyghurs that's largely based in China and Chinese sources. This is a book that really does bring the historiographies, the primary sources, um, sort of attentiveness to the details of the narrative um, from many different linguistic contexts and from both sides of the border into this one very intricately woven, very beautiful story. So in the conclusion, here's what David says. The process that eventually led to the creation of the Uyghur nation consisted of a series of small steps, each occasioned by challenges and opportunities presented by changing political conditions, and each entirely logical and comprehensible in its context. Now, this is a great way, I think, um, of motivating the shape and the historical approach that the book takes. It very much holds our hands as readers and leads us through these small steps. It's never boring, right? It's never too much, at least I don't think so. And it very much um, is a matter of helping us see by taking us through how these small changes, how these small steps in situ collectively gave rise to some really powerful transformative historical events. And the style of the book is very much a careful step-by-step narrative of transformation on the ground, and a narrative that could only be possible given the just incredibly impressive and comprehensive and detailed archival work that David did um, in his research for the book. And you'll hear us talking a little bit about that in the moments to come. Now, the book argues that an account of the emergence of the Uyghur nation is a convergence of two stories. In the words of the book, one of the stories is the rediscovery of the Turkic past among intellectuals connected to the Russian, Muslim, and Ottoman world of letters. And also in the words of the book, um, the second story is the history of efforts to capitalize on the breach created by the Russian Revolution to affect political change in Xinjiang. This is a book that very um, kind of astutely pays attention to the details in these various contexts, and that interestingly for listeners who are particularly coming to this from a context of an interest in Qing history, it's a book that also argues um, that we might move beyond new Qing history as an approach um, insofar as we might move beyond what New Qing history tends to do, which is to have a very China-focused approach to telling a narrative. Okay, so with that, um, I'm just going to let you get to it. There's a lot to get to. It's a really, really impressive, um, and like I said, must-read book for Qing scholars, um, for scholars of the 19th century, or for scholars or readers at all who are interested in Uyghur issues writ large. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the channel. And I hope you enjoy and I really, really hope you get to get your hands on a copy of the book and read all of this delicious, luscious detail that you'll see on each one of the pages. I'm here today to talk with David Brophy about his new book, Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, David, and thanks very much both for talking with me today and also for navigating the time difference between our two places. I really appreciate both of them and welcome to the channel. Hi. Hi, Carla. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start with the traditional new books in East Asian studies question. How did you come and why did you come to work on China and to work on kind of modern Chinese history specifically? 
Uh, well, well, sort um, of China, right? Kind of partially <laughs> China. Yeah, no, I certainly came to Xinjiang via China, which is the way most people come to it. Uh, I had been studying Chinese uh, since I was reasonably young, um, from from high school, actually, and then I so I continued with it through uh, through undergraduate, and and then had the chance to go uh, to China. Uh, a couple of times for short trips. I, I always found it really a frustrating and difficult language, um, and and you know felt like dropping it on many occasions. But I always managed to get convinced by my teachers to to keep going with it. You know, this was a time still when we didn't didn't really have a sense of China as a as a major player uh, in world affairs or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I continued. Um, you know, down the, the Chinese studies path, uh, but uh, but gradually I, I sort of um, became um, you know, more interested in in some of the you know some of the lesser um, known parts of China. I, I'd had from a young age a somewhat romantic interest in uh, I guess the Silk Road, uh, essentially, but. Um, it took me a while to realize that a lot of that history had taken place inside what is now uh, the People's Republic of China. So that was a that was a bit of a discovery for me, um, and that um, got me interested in uh, in uh, in Xinjiang. Um, coming up to the end of my undergraduate study, I, I had the opportunity to start studying Uyghur uh, informally. So I, I got a degree in Chinese from uh, Melbourne University, but um, still didn't have, you know, a particularly useful level of Chinese. So I, I knew I had to go to China anyway um, to, to, to work that out. So given I had an interest in Xinjiang, I decided to go off to, to Xinjiang University uh, for a year. That was in, that was in 2003, 2004. Uh, I still didn't really think of myself as becoming a historian uh, at that point, but uh you know, spending time there, uh, learning the languages. Um, I realized that I had to do something with that uh, in the end. Uh, and that eventually sort of pushed me down the, the, the historic, historical path. I suppose what I liked about the area was that it, it was you could do Chinese history there, but a kind of Chinese history that opened up to different parts of uh, world history, whether it was, you know, say the Islamic uh, world or you know, from the 19th century onwards, which is when the book gets going, um, you know, the Russian uh, Russian and Soviet uh, spheres as well. So it's a, it a different kind of Chinese history um, than that, um, that, that excited me uh, as well. That's right. Now, now, the book that we're talking about today, and we'll get into much, much more detail over the course of the hour, uh -huh. um, is a study of the modern history of the Uyghurs, the Turkic-speaking Muslims of Xinjiang. But the book itself... Uh -huh is fabulous, um, and I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic here, it's really fabulous in that this is not your typical history of China. Um, now, you, you talk here early on in the book about the fact that the history of the Uyghurs has tended to be split in two, right, with most scholarship focusing either on the Soviet Uyghurs or the Xinjiang Uyghurs. Yeah. And the book um, very much brings these together into a single narrative. So this is a history uh, of the Uyghurs, but it's very much a history that pays ample attention, not just to what's happening in China, qua China, right? Uh, so what brought you to this particular focus um, for the uh, project? You've talked a little already about how you came um, to you know, kind yeah. of work on Xinjiang, but why this particular focus for the project? How did you get here? Yeah, well, um, partly it was just spending time in, in Xinjiang and getting the sense as I became more familiar with the history that, um, you know, the trip across the border was a, a formative experience for, for really many people in that, that region's history. But um, for various reasons, it, it hadn't really been um, explored and incorporated into into the, the history of the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. There's all these legends there about people who went off to the Soviet Union and did various things in the 1920s and, and so on. But, um, but uh, you know, it's, it's really more the stuff of legend than, um, than history. So that was, was sort of one dimension of it. Um, when I started spending time over in, uh, in Kazakhstan, which is where the, where the most concentrated community of Uyghurs um, 
in the former Soviet Union is I I came across something similar in that there is a narrative there of the the modern history of the Uyghurs, but it's one that's very very much grounded in the the Soviet um, narrative of um, you know Soviet sponsorship of um, you know cultural production. So on, radicalizing intellectuals, creating a nation uh, in accordance with the Soviet templates, and, and there too, you um, you know, the narrative seemed to neglect the fact that you know people were moving back and forth across this border um, throughout this period, um, and that was creating a whole different set of stories that that were being left out. So that was sort of one line of thinking. Um, the other. I mean, the other fact that pushed me across the border was the realization that it was actually going to be very difficult to conduct research in uh, in Xinjiang. So, yeah, we can go to Xinjiang, we can talk to people there, um, we can, you know, we can look in the bookshops and we can have access to publications from there. But um, if you wanted to do something that is grounded in the archives, it's it's almost impossible, not just for foreigners, but, um, but for locals too. Um, I should say that's improving somewhat um, with some very large publication projects that are coming out of Xinjiang. So the, um, the possibilities... Uh, have somewhat improved since I was uh, I was working on this topic, but at the time, it seemed like I'd be better off working in the um, in the archives of the of, of the you know, former Soviet Union. I mean, around that time as well, there was still quite a buzz around about the opening of the um, the Soviet archives as well. This was sort of early to mid uh, mid two thousands, and um, you know, I was fairly confident that I would be able to uh, to get my hands on some really interesting uh, material. Um, so yeah, there's both sort of intellectual and practical reasons that that pushed me to um, try to fill in these, um, you know, the, the 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 experience on the other side of the border. Which, you know, although the Uyghur community there was never. Um, particularly significant in, in numeric terms um, for that period of history, it was extremely significant in um, you know in political terms. So I want to ask you in a moment about the ways that the project transformed from dissertation to book. But because you sure. mentioned the opening up of the Soviet archives, uh-huh. um, I want to ask you a question first. Was there anything yeah. in your exploration of those archives that um, kind of fundamentally shaped what we see here in the book? Like, were there uh-huh. any materials, anything that you found there that was particularly formative for what you wound up writing? Sure. I... Um the um, mm-hmm. I, I focused early on in the archives on a couple of key events that seem to be really, really crucial to the story. Uh, one of these is the um, conference in Tashkent in 1921, which is this this event that um, has been has been written up as the moment in which the the Uyghurs sort of voted themselves back into existence as a nation. Um, it was a Comintern-sponsored event, um, and and so you know, thinking about what that actually represented was was a really interesting um, uh, process. I, I managed to get hold of you know the um, uh, sort of transcript of that event, as well as the minutes of the organising. Um, committee behind that um, event. There was a number of different aspects to, to that that were quite interesting. It actually came out of an organization that had been established by the Chinese embassy in, in Moscow, which is, I, I thought was a quite a nice irony. Um, the thing that became the, it was the Union of Chinese Citizens became the Union of Chinese Workers uh, and set up a branch in Central Asia that gradually evolved into this, um, into this sort of um, Turkic nationalist organization um, and ended up being very short-lived because it, um, in the middle of 1921, when this this new revolutionary union was uh, established, the Bolshevik alliance with the um, you know with Turkic and Muslim nationalists such as Enver Pasha, so on was was already in the process of breaking down, and this organization actually went over to the um, the anti-Soviet uh, Basmachi um, 
guerrilla movement in the end, which is, which was all quite scandalous uh, and and interesting. But I think the most important thing about this particular event was that it turned out to be a very multi um, multinational gathering. Uh, it wasn't simply an, orga- an organization of people that we would now identify uh, as Uyghurs, and that that led me to thinking about the the history of the Uyghur nation as a political project much more um, than, say, um, you know, the simple culmination of a, a sense of ethnic identity coming to, you know, political expression. It was um, it was much more an attempt to, to cobble together an alliance to, um, to carry out a political intervention, um, taking advantage of the momentum of the Russian Revolution uh, in Western China than any straightforward sense of, of, of an ethnicity turning into a nation. And this is actually a really important point, and I'll just um, flag for listeners, you're just touching on two um, of the, I, I think, are um, what I think are very important points that come up in the introduction. Uh-huh. So you say here in the intro that rather than posit a concept of uh, Uyghur nationalism, the book refers to forms of Uyghurist politics. And uh-huh. so early on, you distinguish your approach from historical studies of um, Uyghur, uh, Uyghur identity or ethnicity. And so uh-huh. um, it seems like actually, um, it's, it's actually really interesting to hear about your experience in the uh-huh. archive shaping uh-huh. those. So let's uh-huh. talk about um, the transition, right, from dissertation sure. to book. Like, yeah. what are you? Um, what are what's notable, or what was notable about that process? And are there any ways in which the project um, substantively transformed from one form to the other? Yeah, well, it was. Um, I mean, I have to say, it was quite a painful process. Too. <laughs> um, I I I edited the book substantially from from head to toe about three or four times, um, and that was. Um, that was possible at first because I had a postdoc for a couple of years, but um, <clears throat> then when I started working, it became you know quite difficult to squeeze that into uh, into the schedule. Um, the The main thing I was concerned to do was to, I mean, the whole point of the book really was to try to tell the story on either side of the border as a coherent single narrative. And I hadn't quite achieved that with the dissertation. The dissertation tended to have chapters that took place largely uh, on the China side, followed by a chapter on the um, on the Russian or the Soviet side and sort of moving back and forth. And I felt that that sort of defeated the purpose of um, what I was trying to do. So I had to really restructure the chapters to, to get that, sense of a common story um, to, you know, to, to be able to talk about, you know, the influence of the 1905 revolution on politics in Xinjiang, you know, 1911-12 Qing, you know, anti-Qing revolution, its you know, repercussions across the border um, in, in Russian territory and so on. So the upshot of that was that the, the book actually became a bit more chronological in structure than it, uh, than it, it had been. Um, so um, the other thing was that I, I felt that I had a lot more material to include, which uh, the dissertation was already quite, um, quite detailed uh, in places. And I, I, was, I was anxious that, um, you know, I, I, was, I was being pulled in two directions. On the one hand, for a sort of Western academic audience, I felt that there was probably a bit too much of that, um, that detail of the, the, the specific political history. There, but then I also felt that I was writing this in part for a, um, you know, a Uyghur audience as well, or at least an audience of, of people in Xinjiang for whom that detail might be actually really uh, interesting and uh, and important. So there was a lot of questions I had there about, um, you know, about how much to leave in, how much to take out. Um, but I also went back to the archives. I went back to uh, Russia. Uh, I managed to get into the uh, the archive of the, the Tsarist Foreign Ministry, which I hadn't hadn't looked at during the dissertation uh, research. Uh, I also tried to flesh out some of the uh, the Ottoman connections uh, a bit more, so I uh, was able to get um, get my hands on some some documents from uh, Istanbul. Spend a bit more time reading uh, Ottoman periodicals uh, of that period, and maybe you know. I, I took a risk in doing so because it threw up a whole 
new set of stories that I was I was still trying to nut out as I was coming up to the submission date for the, the manuscript. So there are parts of the book that have been edited, you know, 10 times and, and parts that I was, you know, literally writing the night before I submitted the manuscript. <laughs> I don't know if readers can tell the difference. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Yeah. Okay, so let's actually get into it because um, the, there's a lot of really – amazing detail in these chapters. So I'll say um, right off the bat for listeners, there's no way that we'll be able to cover all of, or even do more than scratch the surface, right, of um, so many of the really fascinating stories here. But we'll touch on um, some of the, I think, important points in the narrative along the way. So the first chapter... This gives us a picture of kind of the history, the prehistory of the Uyghurs um, going into the main part of the story in the 19th century. So there are three key moments that lead us into the 19th century that you identify here. And I'll just kind of mark these for listeners. And this is largely in the words of the book. Um, one was the dissolution of the original Uyghur state in Mongolia and the flight of the Uyghurs south. Then we have the incorporation of the region into Chinggis Khan's world empire. And then finally, the hegemony of the Jungar Mongols in the 17th and 18th centuries. And this brings us into kind of the main period we're looking at. Now, you talk um, in this chapter about the way that the Qing kind of understood Turkic-speaking Muslims, right? Uh, Are they a group? Kind of uh, what makes them a group? What makes them related uh, to each other? Um, and I think this may be a good point to sort of dive in. So for you, what's important for us to understand about um, the way the Qing kind of understood this group or not of people? And and perhaps, is there anything about your account here that you think um, might differ um, or kind of challenge uh-huh. the way we think about Qing approaches uh-huh. toward Uyghurs? Sure. Well, uh, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the really sort of productive paradigms in looking at the Qing in the last few years has been to, to talk about, um, you know, the way the Qing itself perceived of its subject populations and, you know, uh, um, um, imposed boundaries, um, you know, encouraged certain forms of, um, you know, identity formation, we could say, perhaps, um, that were um, constitutive of, um, you know, the sort of salient group identities in the, um, in the post-imperial period. And, you um, I certainly, um, I mean, for the Qing, primarily the the population of this region were, you know, they were Muslims. Um, that was um, that was the, the basic terminology that they um, they used to to look at this these people. If they needed to um, distinguish them um, as as Turkic speaking Muslims from, say, the the Chinese speaking Muslim population, then they had ways to do that. Um, they could talk about. You know the the turban wearing Muslims, um, but for the most part, um, most part they, they fit into this this larger um, constituency uh, of of Muslims. There's different. Um, the Qing, I think, had different views of of who this Muslim population actually were, and because they were incorporated relatively late into the empire. They didn't invest as much energy in in researching the, the history of this community, giving them a sort of an official genealogy uh, as a community. So there's various different uh, attitudes that you can see uh, floating around Qing sources. And sometimes it depends on the the viewpoint from which people were were looking at this uh, looking at this territory. So a lot of the communication between the Qing court and Xinjiang actually went via Mongolia. So some of the Muslims that um, they would have had the first interaction with were people who you know, may have been um, working for um, various Mongol aristocrats, for the Jungars, uh, and so on. And it's interesting you can pick up a a thread in in the Qing sources talking about the Muslims as if they're effectively a, a branch of the um, a branch of the Mongols. Um, then you know you have people who are approaching uh, Xinjiang, say from um, from Gansu, that area, where there is still, I think, a historical memory of the um, the original Uyghur population uh, of that area. I should say that the Uyghurs, uh, as a group. Uh, can be identified in the sources up until uh, up until around the 16th century, and I'd be reluctant to say that 
any idea of Uyghur identity simply vanishes. I don't think we can. Um, I don't think we can conclude that. So it's hard to say exactly what it what it meant. Um, but you can find Qing sources talking about the population, particularly of the the eastern part of Xinjiang, Hami Turfan, uh, as as Uyghurs, and that may have played a role for some people there. At least people who were familiar with Qing uh, Chinese sources, uh, there wouldn't have been many such people, but but there were among the um, the aristocracy that were created there by the Qing, for whom who could you know pick up on some of those those narratives uh, in the um, in the sources. Um, I mean, really, what this chapter is about is the interaction of. Um, terminology that's been imposed by outsiders and the, um, you know, the identities and narratives that have been, um, you know, been maintained uh, within um, Xinjiang. It's really a very complicated picture. Um, I mean, the two, the two really important things for the book are the, the two categories that come into play once this uh, once this Muslim population crosses into into Russian territory, mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, you have quite a distinct group that have been formed through a process of forced migration from the south to the north of Xinjiang, who become known as the Taranchis. Right. <clears throat> so that area then becomes under Russian occupation, and so there's a there's a sort of a wholesale migration of that Taranchi pro- population into what's now southern Kazakhstan. Generally speaking, though, if people travel to the west from Xinjiang, and, and most of the you know the trajectories in the book are these sort of east-west movements, um, they would tend to be known from the last major setting-off point, which was Kashgar. So, um, so Kashgari is the other term that's um, that's important on that that side of the border uh, as well. <clears throat> Thank you so much. So I was going oh. to ask you to introduce those notions. Oh, sorry. So yeah, no, no, yeah. it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm thanking you. Cause it's perfect. So now we can move on to chapter two. Okay, so uh, Xinjiang is cut off from the Qing Empire by a major Muslim rebellion in 1864. It's reconquered in 1877 and transformed into a Qing province in the 1880s. So this is what's happening in this period. At the same time in this period, Russian colonialism is growing in strength. And here, um, you start telling us a story of two Turkestans, a Chinese Turkestan and a Russian Turkestan. And the two Turkestans are linked in new ways in this period. And you talk here in Chapter 2 about population flows between them and also, and in the words of the book largely, new imperial loyalties that are projected onto um, these diasporas. Okay, so there's all kinds of really interesting ways that these um, peoples and regions are interacting And the study emphasizes the importance of a particular institution or a particular kind of figure um, in mediating some of these um, interactions. Um, This is a figure that you refer to from the beginning of the book as an aksakal. Is yeah. that right? Yes. Okay. Um, so this is uh, an aksakal or a trading headman. Um, uh, this is a figure that mediated the relationship between China or Qing China, Russia, and the trading network they were part of. So can you talk briefly for listeners who have never heard of this and are like, why are you using that term? Yeah. Um, why is this so important um, for the work that you're doing here in the book? What does this help us understand? Sure. Well, I mean, the ultimate objective of the book was to be able to give an account of the uh, the revolution and the contestation around the idea of a Uyghur nation from a from an internal viewpoint, from you know within this this community, um, and because it was a uh, you know located across this this border, I I wanted to establish what the sort of the institutional skeleton of that community. Uh, actually was. And it was quite distinctive because you had this process of movement um, that, that shaped the type of people who were moving back and forth and how that was how that was um, controlled. So, I mean, basically, Aksakal is a pretty generic term for um, various kinds of officials in, in Central Asia. It just means someone with a white beard. So, I mean, elder wouldn't be a bad translation. Um, the specific... Um, institution that I'm interested in is something that has a very long history in uh, in Central Asia and has parallels uh, elsewhere. These are um, 
you know, headmen that arise within communities of, of trading diasporas. Um, it's, a, it's something that is present in Qing, Xinjiang um, from very early on because you have the presence there of um, quite a large number of traders from both from uh, Central Asia, also from India, um, who have uh, have this institution of, of Aksakal. And the question of just who gets to appoint the Aksakal, whose interests they represent, are they are they channeling um, the you know the the uh, you know the wishes and um, policies of the, um, the the host nation, or are they you know in some ways a, a sort of quasi diplomatic representative of the um, the sender nation to use those terms, um, or has the trading diaspora sort of maintained a degree of autonomy and is able to control this institution itself? I found that a an interesting dynamic in this um, in this area. So it's um. <clears throat> You know, in theory, um, once the Russians come in and establish themselves alongside Qing China and Central Asia, they um, they have a you know they have a diplomatic network network of consuls uh, in Western China, and so uh, in fact, the this idea of an Aksakal in some ways becomes superfluous, and it's not actually recognised in any treaties between Russia uh, and the Qing, but. <clears throat> Despite the fact that these, you know, these these traders from Central Asia in Xinjiang are now Russian subjects, um, they enjoy the protection of of Russian consuls. They still stand in a kind of colonial relationship to these um, these Russian consuls, so they themselves feel the need to retain this institution, uh, partly to mediate between. Uh, not so much between the diaspora and the, the Qing state, but to mediate the relationship with the um, with the consul. Mm-hmm. So it comes back, and it's this um, point of contestation between the, um, the the Qing and the Russians for a long time. The, you know, and, and moving into the Republic, it's still a, a major issue. So it, it runs nicely through the book. Um, ultimately, the Chinese decide that rather than trying to get rid of them, uh, they'd be better off having some axicals of their own. Um, and so they then try to appoint um, uh, headmen uh, from Xinjiang into into Russian uh, Turkestan to, to supervise the um, the communities of of Chinese uh, citizen uh, Muslims there, and that was one of the, the sort of political obstacles that activists ran up against during the years of the revolution uh, in the nineteen twenties. You know, trying to combat the influence of the Aksakals came through really clearly in the sources I was reading um, from after the revolution that this was this was a really important thing to um, to provide a genealogy uh, of so um, yeah that's uh, that's why the um, that's why I give so much attention to the um, to this position in the book. Right. So one of the really important things that stands out um, uh, in your discussion of this particular um, kind of institution is that um, you're making the point here that understanding this helps us understand and appreciate the particular forms of political authority that were created in this frontier environment. And because the book is so much going to be about, at least in my, you know, in the way that I read it, um, uh, kind of refocusing us from a story about um, Uyghur ethnicity and nationalism to Uh um, a story about different political forms, like in Uh different political formations Uh and politics, this Uh becomes really important. And I also Uh just want to mark um, that in terms of thinking about this particular kind of frontier environment, you're making a very provocative and I think really convincing and compelling point here that we might understand Xinjiang in terms of treaty ports. Uh, the way we understand sure. treaty ports. Yeah. Um, did you? So I want to make sure that we just put that out there because I think that's a really important conceptual mm. and methodological point the book is making. Did uh, you want to speak to that at all? Um, no, I mean I, I think it's uh, I think it's a point worth making. Um, we have a, I mean we have quite a, um, you know the notion of treaty ports, um, you know conjures up a very maritime view of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's you know it's, it's obvious that this um, this continental frontier needs to be integrated into that um, into that story. I mean the other the other point that I make is that we we should also think about these processes of migration, these various different um, uh, movements uh, of people in and out of Xinjiang in this period, um, very much akin to the um, 
the the migration of uh, of Chinese elsewhere um, in this period, you know, be it for um, you know political reasons, be it for uh, economic reasons, you know, long term emigres, uh, short term sojourners, uh, and so on. We could um, think more broadly about the idea of a, a sort of a diaspora of Chinese, uh, of Qing subjects, sorry, rather than this, this quite ethnicized idea of a Chinese uh, Chinese diaspora too. Right. Now there's a whole chapter after this that is fascinating mm. that we could talk about for an hour sure. that we're not going to get to in any sure. detail. Yep. But I just want to kind of mark this for listeners before we move on. So chapter three looks at some of the ways that efforts at reform, reformist efforts, mm across Eurasia were appropriated in Xinjiang um, for local interest, especially kind of given the ties between Chinese and Russian Turkestan, as I as we briefly uh-huh. introduced a little while ago, um, that brought, as you put it here, the reverberation of events in Russia and intellectual trends among Russian Muslims to Xinjiang. So there's uh-huh. all kinds of inf- interesting stuff happening here about the 1905 revolution and the Taranchis, about the reverberations of this in Xinjiang. And there's also some really interesting attention here in Chapter 3 um, to educational reform and the uh, role of Jadidism here. Uh, so, um, again, we won't have time to talk about uh, this too much, but I just want to mention for listeners, there's some really interesting stuff on educational reform specifically and Jadidism that's here in Chapter 3. Uh, and uh, th- that's just ripe for uh, exploration. Did you want to say anything about that before we move on? Oh, that's okay. I'm happy to move on. I mean, just that, just that, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, I felt that, uh, you know, there had to be, we had, one of the tasks of the book was to revise uh, the narrative of, of Jadidism uh, in Xinjiang. And that really had to involve reconnecting it to, um, a, you know, a genealogy that comes out of, uh, comes out of Russia, um, but also, uh, you know, doing what I could to explore those direct contacts with uh, with Istanbul uh, in that period too. And what emerges is quite a similar picture um, to what takes place across the border in um, in Russian Turkestan. Um, the 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 key difference here being the um, the timetable of of Qing reform process uh, as well. And uh, so I depict the the Jadidist enterprise in Xinjiang is much more of a collaborative process with um, with Qing uh, officials than um, than say would be the case um, between Jadidists and, uh, and and Russian officials uh, across the border. Wonderful, thank you. So as we move uh, super quickly, right? I mean, we're we're covering... uh, Okay, so to chapter four, um, you talk here about uh, at least a few really, really fascinating big things. Um, One of the things that the chapter four does is talk about the um, the 1911 and 1912 Xinhai revolution that brought down the Qing. Um, And you talk about the consequences of this for Xinjiang's Muslims, sort of how they responded. And um, we learn here about the role and position of the Aksakal and Kashgar. We learn about some really fascinating Kashgari reformers. Uh, um, like uh, my favorite here uh, um, was uh, Ahmed Kamal. I think you put it here. One of his works was, quote, a book of blood-curdling lullabies on nationalist themes. Yes, indeed. I love that. And there's also some really interesting attention here to Russian Muslims writing about Xinjiang. And so um, there's some, uh, for example, really interesting attention here to a particular work of fiction called Taranchi Girl. Uh, uh, um, this is actually, uh, why don't we super briefly talk uh, about that? Because it's so interesting. Uh, What's going on here um, with Taranchi Girl? <laughs> so um, this is a, an interesting work. It's probably the first fictional depiction of Xinjiang in, in sort of sustained prose form. Um, I think I'm right in saying that. I, I, I could be wrong. Uh, this is... Um, I mean, the, the section of the book here is concerned with how Xinjiang and its Muslim population was positioned within the larger discourse of Islamic reformism, um, particularly among the, the Tatars who were so influential um, in, this, in, this, in this milieu. He's an interesting guy. He spent, um, he spent about five years in Gulja working for a sort of an import export company and then um when he went back to uh when he went back to to russia he started work on this this novel it's a it's a well-established genre by this time it's about the you know the 
the young girl representing the, the fate of the nation. She, um, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a novel of romance between a young Tatar and a, a local Taranshi girl. So it, it may even be in part autobiographical. Um, but what's important is that this Taranshi girl is part of the community of Russian uh, subject Taranshis. Um, and what threatens this, this union in the novel is a, um, a Chinese subject um, from the south of Xinjiang, uh, Kashgari, who um, to me represents uh, the influx of uh, poor Chinese subject Kashgaris into the Ili region after the um, after the Taranchi migration into, into into Russia, and it's really clear from this this Tatar's portrayal of this this region that these um, that these people are really not in any way part of the um, the national project. Um, you know, it presents a vision of a sort of a Tatar-inspired um, revival of the Taranchi nation. But but the Muslims of Xinjiang themselves are, you know, if anything, seen as a, a threat to that. And I thought that was interesting in sort of problematizing a straightforward narrative um, in which, um, you know, ideas of... Um, you know, national and cultural revival are transmitted smoothly from this this Russian Muslim context into into Xinjiang. Actually, there was a there was a lot um, else that was going on in terms of um, you know the position of Russian Muslims as as a relatively privileged group in, in Western China. You know, after all, they benefited from Russia's treaties with the um, with the Qing. There was clearly a very clear class divide between them and the um, and the local. Um, the local Kashgari population uh, as well. So these were the, the type of things that I was trying to draw out from looking at these Russian Muslim writings um, on Xinjiang. Right. Now, this period also saw what Chapter 4 calls the crystallization of new racial discourses on uh, the Muslims of Xinjiang. Uh, so in this period in China, the Muslims are declared one of five constituent races that are, quote, uh, in harmony, along uh, with Manchus, Mongols, Tibetans, and Chinese. Uh, and you also talk about the Ottoman Empire here and their uh, kind of wartime shift to a Turkist rather than Ottoman yeah. or Islamist public presentation. Uh, uh, now, this is important for the story because the shift to this Turkist um, presentation um, was a way to glorify the Uyghurs or Uyghurism uh, in this context. So what's important about that for the larger narrative of the story? Yeah, so I mean the, the, the sort of the rediscovery of the glorious past of, of the Turks um, is really goes in ha- hand in hand with the um, you know the rediscovery of the Uyghurs. Um, and their contributions to this this new um, revised uh, notion of a, of a Turkic civilizational narrative that, that becomes important um, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, um, and then really picks up during World War One when um, you know the conflict between um, Arab nationalists and um, you know the young Turks intensifies, uh, and there is this there is this shift to um, you know more explicit articulation of a kind of a Turkic uh, nationalism. So within that, the Uyghurs are are really crucial, um, and they're crucial for anyone who's interested in that that project. Um, so the Uyghurs in in Turkish discourse come to represent a, a sort of a term for any civilized uh, Turk. Um, and that has to do with the fact that the historic Uyghurs were the first to sedentarize, first to create a written um, religious literature, uh, and, and so on. Um, so Uyghur in, in Turkey, it's, it's, it's interesting, it actually really becomes abstracted from any particular time and place uh, and just becomes this, you know, this mark of a, a civilized Turk that, that anyone, you know, could potentially um, be in that. And that's really sort of remained part of the concept um, in the way it's used in, in different contexts. Um, but at the same time, what you had going on in, in Russia was a slight variation on that theme. Um, you know, you had Tatar intellectuals who, while, yes, recognising that they were part of some kind of broader Turkic racial unity, um, no denying that, they were still, um, you know, 
interested in in constructing uh, a more um, more ethno national template for a Tatar nation, you know, a Tatar culture, um, uh, t- a, you know, Tatar language built out of the you know the language of the um, the rural vernacular uh, and so on. So that meant that there were sort of two. Um, templates available for people from Xinjiang who are uh, who are interested in these kind of new racial discourses. One was to sort of go along with um, people in Istanbul and, and just you know emphasize one's Turkic identity, uh, and the other one was to sort of borrow on the Tatar template and lay particular claim to a particular branch of this um, this um, Turkic family. And it's out of that that, you know, you start to get around the middle of, um, around World War One period that Muslims from Xinjiang um, starting to construct a specific narrative of, of communal genealogy in which the Uyghurs figure uh, very prominently. Not yet to the point where people are coming out and saying that um, we are Uyghurs, but that um, in this sort of mythologized genealogy of, say, the Taranchi community, uh, Uyghur as this kind of personified ancestor occupies a really important position. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so this actually really nicely leads us like on our narrative uh, read through the book, we're going to do a, the horrible rushing thing. Yeah. And we're we're going to skip through um, some really rich, fabulous chapters. So I'll just very briefly say for listeners uh, in chapter five, um, we see a kind of transformation and I'm just going to mark this and move on. Now up to this point in chapter five, the book has developed three narr- three distinct kinds of narratives and they start to come together here. Um, the narratives that you identify here are the structure of authority in the border trading networks, the um, and in the words of the book, the contestation uh-huh. of community leadership among the Taranchi uh, migrants, and the growing uh-huh. radicalization of aspiring educational reformists in Xinjiang. We talked uh-huh. a little bit about uh-huh. that. And uh-huh. what this chapter does is it looks at the consequences of the 1916 anti-Tsarist rebellion in Russian Turkestan, the 1917 revolutions, and the ensuing civil war um, from the perspective of sort of our three main actors, the Taranchis, uh-huh. the Kashgaris, and the Muslim community of Xinjiang. Mm. From there, we move from party to nation in Chapter 6. And this is uh, actually really important. Um, You're showing here in Chapter 6 that for the Taranchis, um, Uyghur identity is a matter of party affiliation, right? Um, Being a member of the uh, Uyghur club, as you talk about it here, um, uh, perhaps being a communist member, being pro-Soviet, this is what made you a Uyghur. It's sort of considered in terms of party affiliation. And by the end of the chapter, we start seeing emerging discourses of a kind of Uyghur nationalism. Okay. Um, now, this is um, super briefly, because this is kind of important, you are complicating here by the end of this, um, our notion of what constitutes nationalism here, of how nationalism is and what nationalism is. So what's, for you in this chapter, as we move from party to nation, what is perhaps, um, or, or what are among the most important revisions of how we understand nationalism in this context that you're making um, with this study? Uh, well, I, I mean, I see the the earliest uh, political appropriations of this this idea of a Uyghur um, um, Uyghur genealogy um, as as uh, sort of an umbrella that is um, is seen to be relevant to uh, any Muslim who has a connection to the um, to the uh, to China um, so in that sense it's actually not that different from the old Qing constituency of, of Hui in that it doesn't really distinguish between the um, Chinese speaking Muslims the Turkic speaking Muslims uh, and and so on so um, it's not so much that the people who are promoting this saw it simply as a as a political uh, designation, um, there was there was I think a, an idea behind this, but it was one much more thought of in terms of um, uh, sort of subjecthood or the political legacy or um, the you know of, of having been a, uh, a Qing subject at some point. 
um, and, and religion uh, as well uh, as that. But once you take uh, a term like this and try to give it, you know, wider circulation by, you know, calling organizations weaker, uh, and so on, then then beyond this core of, of people, then it really does become a, a factional uh, designation. And it's clear from the sources that a lot of people talk about it that way. It's clear that people looking on from Xinjiang, when they, um, you know, when they talked about these, these Uyghurs in, you know, in Soviet Central Asia, they were talking about a group that they didn't identify with themselves. This was a, you know, uh, this was the young radicals, the you know the Jadida hotheads who uh, were stirring up things um, over there, which um, which means it's actually then that's really only the start of a process by which this uh, by which this designation comes to be associated with what we might think of as ethnic markers, um, and that's that's actually a quite a long process. It's a, it's a difficult process. Uh, it's hard to trace in the sources, you know, at what point do people start identifying, um, primarily as, as Uyghur. Um, it's something that is some way, is some way shaped by the changing, um, political environment. Um, policies by the mid 1920s have, have made it clear to people that, this category of nationality is one of the key ways in which people are going to interact with the, the Soviet system. And so you have to have, um, you know, you, you have to clarify that if you want to, um, you know, engage with that system and extract uh, resources from it. Uh, but at the same time, there's no point at which any Soviet official or ethnographer comes in and says, all right, uh, we've decided that henceforth you people will be uh, known as, as the Uyghurs. They're really quite hands-off about this. So there's ambiguity in the official structures up until the, the late 1930s, um, actually. Um, I really, I think that, um, it, it uh, you know, it depends a lot on the, um, the environment in which people were operating. I think that to come up with a radical reinvention of um, communal identity was was quite a risky thing to do um, because it, um, you know, in the case of the Taranchis who've been settled in, in Kazakhstan for quite a long time, you know, they had historic claims to that territory that were called into question through the revolution um, that, um, you know, a lot of them fled across the border. When they came back to their villages, they weren't particularly welcome. Um, you know, the fact that the Taranchis had been a recognised nationality under the Tsarist system meant that that was really how they had to base their claims in the, um, you know, in the early Soviet period. And and actually, um, you know, processes of land reform and so on really meant that, um, you know, activists in that area had to rely, uh, had to fall back on that, um, that, that notion of Taranchi identity. You know, where the Uyghur... Um, where the Uyghur discourse comes through quite the strongest is actually in quite a surprising place uh, among the Kashgaris, who up to that point have been relatively sceptical of any, um, you know, new imagining uh, of the nation. They're people who have, you know, they have good, you know, close connections to Xinjiang and they know it well. They don't really feel the need to, to revise their um, their communal narratives uh, in any way, um, but I think they feel a threat of assimilation um, in the mid-1920s when the Soviet Union starts to draw the boundaries of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Soviets didn't particularly like people identifying by place of origin. Um, they thought it was they thought it was a category error, basically. Um, they thought it was a sign of, of, of backwardness. Um, so they were um, you know, quite happy to identify Kashgaris as uh, as as Uzbeks, um, whereas um, switching to a rhetoric of, of Uyghur distinctiveness and and, and all the, the historical narrative that that contains, um, you know, presents probably a um, a, a, a better um, barrier to that that sort of threat of uh, assimilation. So these are the type of considerations I, I analyze in, in talking about, you know, how and why people took up this, um, this particular rhetoric. But yeah, I mean, it's by about 1925, 1926, when you start to see people making the case publicly that the Uyghurs do constitute a nation 
Um, they fit all the criteria of Stalin's definition uh, of the nation. Uh, and naturally, that means that other groups such as the the, the Chinese-speaking Muslims, the Dungans or the Hui, uh, end up going their separate way and becoming a distinct um, Soviet nationality in their own right. right. Now, you make the point very strongly here, and this is um, in particular toward the end of the seventh chapter, that Soviet nationality's policy did not consolidate the Uyghurs into a nation, right? This was not uh, a kind of um, top-down thing, uh, and I think this is uh, a really important point that um, the book even ends on. This is an important point um, that, at least for me, um, that readers are taking home. Um, when you kind of take on toward the end of the book the question of how did Uyghur become a nationality, um, you make the point here. It was neither, and this is in the words of the book, neither the state and its officials, nor a well-organized national movement, but instead a small and disenfranchised body of activists divided amongst themselves and seeking to obtain the best outcome from a political environment that was beyond their control. Um, So this seems, I mean, and then that's in the words of the book. So this seems like a really important kind of take home for us here in terms of how we get to a discourse of nation and nationality associated with um, Uyghur, right? As a a Uh, name and toponym. uh, Yeah. Um, Now, we there's a ton of material right um, here. I mean, throughout the book, but certainly in this last part of the book, um, that is just rich um, for the reading. Right? There's a lot of attention here, and I just want to call um, attention to this for listeners. A lot of attention as well in different ways to the role of language and literatures um, in conversations um, about. Uh, Uyghur identity about Uyghurness. Um, this happens throughout these chapters. And in particular, I just want to mark um, one of the really interesting parts of the chapter, chapter eight for me, was a story about how we got to the Chinese transcription of Uyghur. They were, right? Um, sort of, I mean, you know, and, and I want to, I think this is interesting because we don't really tend to think about this, right? When we look at um, transcriptions of a word like this, Weiwur, I mean, it, uh, I think there's so much um, of an assumption that, oh, it's just about the sounds, right? We uh, don't think too much uh, about it, but there's actually a really um, uh, interesting story there. Did uh, you want to maybe talk about that? Uh, look, it's an anecdote from um, the sources from this, um, this, this period. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, <sighs> There was a, a debate at the time. Once it became uh, recognised as an official um, category, then um, then it was really up for grabs as to how people should uh, should write this this word in in Chinese. Um, and there's a there's a nice um, there's a nice story about a meeting in which um, it's one of these sort of classic um, you know stories involving the. Um, you know the uh, the autocrat in this case Chen Shisai, sitting around a table with his um, his advisors and having various suggestions put forward, um, which uh, one of which uh, involved a um, uh, the uh, the term um, uh, weiwu, sort of um, powerful or, or threatening, <laughs> which was obviously had to be rejected. Um, they then they then came up with this um, this transcription that we have now, which um, they you know had to give a uh, sort of a, a spin on it. That I mean, this is the contradiction of the Shanghai period. That on the one hand, it was granting an unprecedented degree of recognition to uh, to nationalities and national identity, um, but at the same time, accompanied with you know very strong um, injunction against. Um, you know, against nationalism and um, emphasis on uh, unity uh, and so on. So, um, so Weiwu was supposed to have, you know, meant, um, you know, we all protect each other kind of thing and we all unite to, um, to defend the motherland or, or something like that. This is obviously quite a stretch, but um, anyway, that, uh, that stuck. Mm-hmm. Transcription is not necessarily just <laughs> as simple as. Well, it's it always been that way, hasn't it? I mean, <laughs> right. the, I mean even the, um, the, the in the Tang Dynasty, there was an argument about how to transcribe uh, Uyghur because the Tang were concerned that the characters not be too, you know, not be too aggrandizing for the. Um, and that's going back to the original Uyghurs. So it's, uh, it's always been a question. <laughs> So as we move to the uh, toward our conclusion, there's just one final thing I want to ask you about before we kind of wrap up. And this is something that comes up in the conclusion of the book. 
Now, you make a point here that the Uyghur nation emerged as um, what the book calls a palimpsest of Islamic, Turkic, and Soviet notions of national history and identity. And you also talk here about the consequences of this for how China deals with Uyghur issues today. And I wonder if you could talk just briefly about that as a way of maybe um, kind of wrapping this up and bringing us into um, the conclusion and then kind of into the now and beyond. Mm, sure. Well, I suppose, I mean, I suppose the Uyghur history has always been a, quite a poor fit for um, the way that uh, the People's Republic of China would, would like to see um, its its ethnic minorities as, uh, as self-contained um, cultural units that don't have um, ties that spill across borders in, in problematic ways. Um, and they've... Um, you know they've always been uh, nervous about any um, any aspect of uh, of Uyghur identity that expresses that that sort of transnational, or I suppose we should say in this context, trans imperial um, history uh, of that um, that story. I mean, just as, there's there's many examples um, of this. You know, when I first went to Xinjiang, it was. Uh, around the time of one of the World Cups, and and Chinese students on campus just could not um, fathom why Uyghurs uh, would be supporting Turkey uh, in the World Cup. It, you know, it wasn't wasn't simply that they were annoyed that they weren't um, cheering for China, but it was just a sort of a complete mystery um, for them, which was which was really sort of striking um, to, to see the way that, that aspect of Xinjiang's history has just been uh, elided. I mean, there's more recent examples too. Um, a lot of, a lot of campaigns that are, um, you know, that, you know, there's a, there's a sort of an anti-terrorist crackdown uh, at the moment is generating a lot of paranoia uh, about uh, elements of, of Uyghur culture that, that reflect you know the the, um, the significance of Islam uh, in that culture, and uh, and it always gets very messy when Chinese officials try to draw the line uh, between these things. I mean, there's been a lot of um, back and forth recently about the um, you know particular style of dancing in the south of Xinjiang, the, the so-called Sama dancing, which so the story goes was being encouraged. Um, as a sort of you know aspect of Uyghur folk culture, uh, until an official discovered that it might have some uh, Islamic connotations, um, sort of a Sufi style of dancing, and um, proceeded to to ban this this form of dancing. Um, more recently, that ban seems to have been lifted, but but very much this idea that um, uh, you know Uyghur culture is something that um, you know is. Um, you know, is uh, is is folkloric. Uh, it's something that um, that doesn't tap into in a wider currents of, of Eurasian uh, cultural political history, um, and that's that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. So, David, we're now at the conclusion, and there are a million billion things in the book that Uh you didn't talk about, right? It's extraordinarily rich. It's extraordinarily detailed, um, and Uh listeners will hopefully um, be able to enjoy that for themselves when they pick Uh up a copy. But Uh in the meantime, is there anything in particular that we didn't get to but that you'd like to kind of mention for listeners? Uh Um, Look, I think we've covered a lot. I... I, um I might just say that although this is a book called Uyghur Nation, um, because of the approach I took, you know, I, I did try to, um, well, I, you know, actually I was, I was compelled to follow, um, follow narratives that went in, um, you know, a number of different directions. There was, there was a lot I felt that had to be done to, to map out the, um, you know, the role of Chinese speaking Muslims, both in Xinjiang and um, across the border. In, uh, in in Russian Soviet territory, so the, the sort of the Dungan history, which um, there's, there's quite a lot of that in there for people who are interested in um, that. And the other thing we didn't talk about much that I became increasingly interested in was the um, the way in which the uh, the experience of the Mongols in, in Xinjiang reflects some of the similar aspects of the um, the Uyghur story. So, um, you know, I try to, I try to deal with that, uh, in the book, um, as well. That's just a, you know, by way of saying that people who, who's, um, uh, you know, may not necessarily be interested in all the intricate details of, of, 
the Uyghur National Project, hopefully there's, there's something broader uh, in here um, for, uh, for them. That's, yeah, something like that. So now that the book is out, um, what, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Uh, well, this was a very heavy um, archival-based book, um, and I'm trying to do something a little bit different for the the next book. I mean, I have some ideas about future um, projects and along a similar line, but I came across a really nice um, story as I was doing the research um, for this book. Um, I won't say too much about it because it's a it's a story about someone whose identity was uh, often called into into question. So um, I maybe don't want to give away too much, but it was um there's a case that I, I came across from the 1870s when British um, diplomats started going up to Kashgar and they found a, a British guy living there um, who they were able to connect to um, a story that had been uh, published 20 years earlier so on about a, um, a British uh, orphan who'd been left behind after the first Anglo-Afghan war. Um, so I sort of took this document and then went back to the archives in, in London to try to reconstruct this um, this story. And I managed to find uh, enough there to, to try to tell this story uh, in some way. Uh, it, it's a very different kind of writing. It's taking a thin archival skeleton and try to sort of stretch the narrative uh, across it. Um, whereas with this book, it was always a question of, um, you know, having too much to, to, um, to fit into, in, into one book. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Um, uh, but, but hopefully a bit of a, um, you know, a, a change from, um, from the um, style of work I've been doing up until now. Well, it sounds totally exciting. So call me when that's done. Yeah, I will sure. talk about that one. And thank you so much for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. It's a fantastic book. This is absolutely um, going to be a must read for anyone interested in, I think, global history, Chinese history, 19th century history. And it was just a total pleasure to talk with you about it. So congratulations and thanks again, David. Yeah, thanks, Carl. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.